That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, every couple of days or so, Donald Trump brags about having 95% support among Republicans. Well, like everything else, Donald Trump must be ignoring the evidence. There are, in fact, more and more Republicans every day, not only speaking out against Trump, but opposing him for re-election. We've talked to a couple of them on this podcast, Bill Kristol of Republican Voters Against Trump and Rick Wilson of the Lincoln Project. Today, we meet one more, one of the strongest voices so far, leading conservative thinker and former George W. Bush speechwriter, David Frum. Frum is out with a new book, Trumpocalypse, as scary as it sounds, where he warns that the world, the nation, and the Republican Party could not survive another four years of Donald Trump. It's time, says David Frum, for those Republican leaders who went along with Trump, thinking he might grow into the job of president, to finally admit they were wrong. David Frum, good to join you. Thanks so much for giving us some time today. Bill, it's, it's so nice to reconnect after this while. Indeed. So the new book, Trumpocalypse, I mean, uh, Apocalypse. David, that's a very ominous title. Is it as scary as it sounds? Well, when the publisher and I uh, set the title some months ago, I did share exactly your feeling. Actually, <laughs> I thought I might be like overselling. Uh, you know, things were bad, but apocalypse? <laughs> but but um, the origin of the title is this. The word apocalypse, we use it to mean catastrophe, mm-hmm. but, but it actually means um, a revelation. It means an unveiling, liter- literally is the, the Greek, mm. is the, to, to take something off something. Um, so... I'm trying to give here a glimpse of the future post-Trump. I wrote the book um, thinking it was probable that Donald Trump would lose. I then had a chance to rewrite the book when the coronavirus struck. And at that point, I was quite certain that Trump would lose. And so the question is, what happens to this country and to my party, the Republican Party, afterward? Yes. And the book is really in two parts, as you point out. One is to talk about how what a bad job Trump has done. Uh, on several levels, but also uh, a note of hope at the end. The second part of the book is how we recover, right? So basically it's an optimistic message. Well, it's an action message. Um, My own um, psychology is not an optimistic psychology, but I've always believed that you have to, even if you think like a pessimist, as I do, you have to act like an optimist. Uh, And so we need to be ready. There are going to be some important opportunities for America in the post-Trump era, and uh, we we need to use them. A couple of times in the book, you mentioned uh, right up front and again toward the end that we have survived four years of Donald Trump, but we could not survive another four years. I know you believe that. Why? Well, let's talk first abroad and then at home. Okay. Um, uh, I think the damage abroad it has been worse and faster. Uh, if, if, no friend of America 
uh, can look at the past four years and ever feel the same way about the United States again, even even if the next president goes around the world swearing, um, look, this was a mistake. We will never do this again. We're repealing all these crazy tariffs that we applied on so promiscuously um, with no basis. Uh, we are reaffirming our commitment to allies. You know, Estonia, when we said uh, it would what, whether we would honor our treaty with you, that depended on how the president felt that day. Um, forget all that. No one can forget all that. It happened. If it happened once, it can happen again. Countries have to plan for the 20, 30, 40 year term. And nobody who relies on America can feel sure that this is impossible to ever recur. So they, it changes their thinking. And then here at home, the real worry I have is that um, normally parties compete for votes. But since 2010, especially, the Republican Party's gotten to an idea. We don't have to change our message if we can shrink the electorate instead of competing for it. And so we have had, enabled by certain changes in the law, um, the shrinkage of the Voting Rights Act after 2013, we're seeing in the Republican side a conscious and articulate strategy of competing for power by shrinking the electorate. Uh, in several different ways, right? In several different ways. So so one of the things I'm interested in when I, in my program of reform is uh, I want to see a Republican Party that competes. And I think it's very important to, um, for the Republican future to remove the option of shrinking the electorate. So, oh, you got to take the voters as they are. And then you, know, you, you may be surprised, uh, conservatives, how open a lot of Americans are to your message once you stop insulting people and saying, we are going to govern without regard to big parts of the country. Uh, now, I want to ask you about something that's very much in the news these days. According to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, and others, um, the Russians were offering bounties, cash bounties, to members of the Taliban to kill American soldiers. Uh, if true, uh, and I have to say that there's some solid reporting, it seems, behind it, what does that tell you about Donald Trump's leadership? He says he never knew about it. Well, I want to be really careful about not getting too far ahead of this story um, because it is so explosive that we need to move very exactly. So, um, but here's here's what I think we can say. Uh, people in the intelligence and defense world are really obviously upset about this story. So, and they are leaking details so that mm -hmm. each denial from Donald Trump and the people around him um, is responded to by another leak that refutes the denial. So the, Trump says, uh, well, you know, I was never briefed. Uh, there's a leak. Um, you were briefed. And not only were you briefed, but there's a National Security Council meeting on the subject. So it's it's hard to back away. And I think it's also very noteworthy that the story, while it's been denied as, as of the time you and I speak, it has been denied by President Trump. It has been denied by the former acting um, uh, director of national intelligence, Richard Grinnell, and it's been denied by the current director of national uh, director of national intelligence, um, former Congressman Ratcliffe. Now, none of these people is a super credible witness, um, and people who are close enough to politics to listen to a show like yours know that. Meanwhile, let's note who has not spoken about the story. Um, no comment from the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. No comment from the CIA director. Uh, no comment from. Um, by the way, Mike Pence, who was also named as one of those uh, briefed. No comment from Mike Pompeo, who is um, a, a very artful liar, but doesn't like to directly lie. Um, 
I'm sorry, I shouldn't say call him a liar. He's an artful misleader, but he doesn't like to directly lie. And you notice Pompeo's answers, although when you go read the transcript where he has been misleading, he has effectively changed the subject or veered away or insulted the interviewer or done something so he doesn't put a, a flat out untruth on the record. Right. So um, there's obviously a lot of power behind this story. Um, even if even if it turns out that um, we are dealing with raw intelligence and, and there's some question marks over what exactly happened inside Afghanistan, the Washington part of the story, uh, which is that there was information flow that Trump is denying that part seems pretty solid. Uh, and we do know from uh, Fiona Hill and, jo and John Bolton and John Kelly and others that uh, the intelligence briefings, the daily intelligence briefings, are not necessarily something that Donald Trump pays a lot of attention to, shall we say. Right. Well, there are a lot of possibilities here. Uh, again, um, and again, we have to be really careful that this is a, uh, an emerging story. But um, the intelligence agencies are certainly stake. There are a lot of people briefing a lot of a lot of people inside, briefing a lot of different people outside. This story has been had has been briefed to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, the BBC, and the, and now the AP on the day you and I speak. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of power behind it. Um, it's possible there, there's a there's one other possibility about this, which is there was in March and April a flurry of calls between Trump and Vladimir Putin, much more. I think there were half a dozen in the span of a couple of weeks, which is a faster pace than usual. It may have been that Trump was trying to ha ha exaggerated, as he often does, his relationship with Putin was somehow trying to do personal diplomacy to settle the story. And, mm -hmm. that, and that he made some effort that then failed. And then because he was embarrassed by his failure, he's now lying to cover his tracks. So I, again, I want to, I th but I think it shows that we have a really dysfunctional government. And we have a president who has lost the confidence and trust of important sectors of the military and the intelligence services. And that's the theme of the Trumpocalypse book. Exactly. And as you point out, uh, there, there are still, this is a developing story. It's an emerging story. But one, and you've already referenced this, one uh, evidence we do have, manifest evidence of Donald Trump's um, leadership or lack of is the administration's response and his personal response to the corona coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Atlantic is out, I'm sure you've seen it, with a, a, a piece just, I think, yesterday saying, well, in the first phase, Donald Trump may have not given this enough attention, uh, and he might have made the case, well, this is something came from China, but now he owns it. It no. is his. What do you see we learn from his response to the pandemic? Well, I, I, I am familiar with that story. I, I, I wrote it for The Atlantic, and it was a sequel to a story <laughs> Sequel to a story I wrote on April 7th. The first story tracked Donald Trump's negligence in December, January, February, March, um, and how by not acting effectively, he allowed this thing to spiral out of control in a way that was worse than in any other comparably developed country. But Americans rallied. And an enormous sacrifice to their businesses, to their jobs, their pay, um, to their schooling. I think the damage to children's schooling is going to endure for years as a result of this. But the country was shut down. And between the first peak, national peak, on April 27th and the national low on May 11th, uh, we reduced the in infection rate in the country by about half, from about 38,000 cases a day um, on at the end of April to about 17,000 cases a day by the middle of, of May. And at that point, Trump said, okay, I'm bored. I'm done. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, we're going to reopen everywhere. And not only are we going to reopen anywhere, but if anyone wears a mask, I will take it as a personal criticism. I will be offended by that and I will make fun of it. And my Fox News apparatus will mock you. Um, and he succeeded in persuading, well, a, a majority of Americans understood they needed to mask. Only 40% of Republicans agreed. And so in Republican-dominated states like Texas, like Florida, masking was became very unusual. And the result is that we now have spikes at the end of June that are higher, not yet as deadly as what happened in April, but the number of, the number of cases per day is higher than it was at the worst at the end of April. All of that sacrifice was wasted, and it was wasted by the president's vanity because he sees the mask as a personal criticism, not as a safety measure. And yet, does he do so with impunity? That's a point that you make, I thought, very powerful in the book, that he's done so much that we couldn't believe, but he gets away with it. Well, he's had more success with some institutions than with others. And we we're talking for a minute about the military in Afghanistan. Impress the military has been one of the institutions least vulnerable to President Trump. That's one of the things that could change in a second term, that um, Trump is not very knowledgeable about military promotions. I think there's something like 4,000 one-star generals in the U.S. Army, uh, or I may have been, maybe it's 4,000 colonels and 1,200 one-stars. I don't have that figure. But there are a lot of people. If you're looking for Trumpy, anti-democratic, reactionary people, you have to sift through a lot of names and really know what you're doing. But in a second term, he, he might. But to date, the military has been very robust. The Department of Justice, no, and the failures in Congress are the worst. And it is Congress, and especially the Republicans in Congress, that have given this president his impunity, where he's decided, I don't answer subpoenas if I don't want to, um, I, don't, uh, I don't tell the truth to Congress if I don't want to, and no one can do anything. And how did that happen? I mean, I'm really puzzled. Look, I'm a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat. But my first job was working for a Republican. I hate to use the old cliche, but some of my best friends yeah. <laughs> have been Republicans. I mean, in Washington and in California, I couldn't, I can't believe how the Republican Party in just a matter of months went from not taking Donald Trump seriously to being in his hip pocket, basically, yeah. a total surrender almost. And how do you read? I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I quote um, in Trumpocalypse a congressman from Florida, uh, uh, Ted Yoho, who said, um, I work for the president. I answer to the president. Now, that his district in Florida, I, don't, I may not remember this exactly, voted about 55% for Donald Trump in 2016. So 45%, not quite half, but nearly half of his district voted against Donald Trump. You would have thought that he, that the congressman worked for that 45% as well as the 55% that did. And 20 years ago, a congressman would think, or a member of the Congress would think, yeah, I, I represent my district. Mm -hmm. I may be a Republican member of Congress. I am a Republican member of Congress. And if we send it a subpoena and a president of my party ignores that, I am a, you know, maybe as a Republican, I have one reaction, but my first identity as a member of Congress, I say, you answer, you reply to our subpoenas because that's where I make my career. That's my identity. That's my, that's my job. Uh, I answer to my constituents. And what has happened is we have no more Congress. We have two parties in Congress. Uh, and they are they are members of their party first and members of their institution only second. And that's a product of bigger changes in American life. And you talk about the need for some of those changes uh, in the second part of the book, uh, which which we'll we'll get to. But um, were you surprised to see 
some Republicans, like a Lindsey Graham or like a Marco Rubio, those who were openly, and Ted Cruz, very critical of Trump during the primary, Paul Ryan at one point wouldn't even appear on stage with him, you know, suddenly become Trump's biggest defenders. Yeah, it's it's remarkable, isn't it? Um, Trump, you know, he's he's not obviously very well informed, and he's not even maybe conventionally clever in the way that many politicians are clever. But he's got this kind of like reptile instinct for weakness, yeah. um, and he just finds it. Yeah, and he breaks people, and he I mean he's broken Lindsey Graham. I, Actually, I think what's happened to uh, Marco Rubio is actually more embarrassing what's happened to Lindsey Graham because Graham Graham is doing this with his eyes open um, and he's he's trading. He's getting stuff. You know, he's he's got his uh, some stuff policy, some some stuff for his district, but he's got a vision. I've, I've made a deal with the devil and I'm checking my receipts and I'm making sure that the packages actually <laughs> do arrive. Uh, whereas Rubio just seems like a broken, shattered person. Um, and Ted Cruz seems like um, Ted Cruz just thinks, "Hey, you know, I'm forty years, I'm thirty-five years younger than Donald Trump. Uh, he won't be here forever, and my future depends on just getting through this awful period. Um, mm-hmm. And and then I can I can stick around to clean up the pieces. But Rubio won't be around to pick up the pieces because he's just he's he is the pieces. He's just smashed." I uh, did not remember remember this, probably read it at the time, but on Inauguration Day 2017, you tweeted, uh, quote, the worst human being ever to enter the presidency, yeah. uh, including, you said, those who owned slaves. Yeah. Uh, that proven true? I think so, because even for um, other presidents of personality weakness, um, we can say something positive about all of them. Like um, Andrew Johnson, who was the president, the, the first president to be impeached um, and who was the most virulent racist ever to hold the presidency and, 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 and a drunkard on top of that and would get drunk. <laughs> um, so a lot of, and the, the man who nearly gave away reconstruction, Andrew Johnson was physically brave. He had been a civil war military governor of Tennessee. His life had been under constant threat. He had held the post of duty. He had never run away. Um, and you, you could say that about him. Andrew Johnson had also been born into really severe poverty. He had been, he'd grown up illiterate. He had educated himself. You could say that about him. And you could go through the list, you know, like um, John Tyler, who uh, turned traitor, uh, went and served in the Confederate Congress. Um, he was an incredibly devoted husband and father and um and his house still stands and it's still in his family and the you know the 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 personal affection now that doesn't offset his public faults but there's something i I, you can do i mean richard nixon i mean you remember him from your early political career a a profound intellect and the tragedy of nixon is that so much ability was not put and and a person also of great accomplishment he wrote our environment every major piece of uh, environment exactly wrote all of that um, he had a vision of peace and foreign policy, and it, it, we are endlessly fascinated with him because he's so tragic, because of those abilities. And even Warren Harding was a lot of fun at a party. <laughs> Which gets you a long way in Washington, right? <laughs> well, well, but I, I challenge you, say something good about Donald Trump. And we'll leave, yeah, we'll leave that challenge right there. You're not going to get it from me. But I, I was really moved when... You called your daughter on election night 
Yeah. And the message to your daughter was, we failed you. Wow. Yeah. Well, because I took, I had, and I've been involved in the Republican world for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say we built this monster, but we built the lab in which the monster was built. Um, and I worked very hard as I'm now a journalist. I'm not involved in politics exactly, but, but, you know, I lent every effort of my, my pen uh, to stop him in 2015 and 2016. And uh, this is my youngest daughter. I, I had called home. I would, and I'd been in a TV booth and you know what that's like. You're just yeah, actually right. more isolated from the world. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Waiting your turn. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I finally had a chance to call home. My wife was long since asleep. Um, and uh, the older kids were in California and uh, I got my youngest and who had never been that interested in politics before. And it just, she was so scared. She wasn't upset. She was really scared and, and with reason. And we're talking with David from his new book, just out, Trumpocalypse, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. A quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and we'll be right back. Today's podcast brought to you by the Iron Workers Union. Yes, those great men and women of the Iron Workers. Their slogan is, the sky's the limit. And boy, is it ever. Look at some of the great iconic buildings and structures in this country. The Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the St. Louis Arch, the new One World Trade Center, all topped off by the Iron Workers under the leadership of President Eric Dean. We salute the Iron Workers of America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
And welcome back. Our conversation with uh, David from uh, his new book is Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Now, let's get to the upbound, the rebound part of the book, if we can, David, because uh, I was very impressed. First of all, you say right up front that the pendulum in politics swings, which it does. We've seen it swing in our own lifetime several times. But you predict that the pendulum will soon swing far from where we are today. What gives you that little burst of optimism? Well, I wouldn't even call it optimism because I'm not sure I welcome all of the, the swing. <laughs> they swing too far, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, but I, I can see we are uh, we are entering um, a more liberal era. Uh, part of it is because um, uh, look, uh, the baby boomers, my people. I was born in 1960. I don't say this with accusation, but in response to the Great Recession, um, in response to the election of a black president, um, the baby boom generation swung, the, or at least the white 87% of the baby boom generation swung very hard to the right between about 2008 and 2012. And you can measure that. I, I, in a previous book, I have a lot of chapter and verse on, on the nature of that swing. Um, and a lot of the um, agitation of the Tea Party years was the baby boom generation asserting its collective self-interest mm -hmm. um, in protecting its programs from others. There, there's this story that um, somebody to, uh, carried a sign that said, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. <laughs> right. And now I've, I've done a lot of research. I've never found that sign literally carried unironically. There are lots of photos of that sign, but it's always a, like as a joke. But if anybody ever did say it, it is not a stupid thing to say because who else is going to touch your Medicare? Only the government. And the people, the people would say, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. They're not ignorant that Medicare is a government program. They just know it's an especially generous program in a country where other programs are not so generous. And they, and they were hard hit by the recession of 2008. And, and they were entering their 60s at that point. And they rallied. But the baby boom generation is moving away from active politics in the 2020s. Um, the baby boom generation, just because of the workings of nature, is going to become more female. Uh, the men go first. Mm -hmm. um, and it will become uh, it, more dependent on government. It will exhaust its private savings and uh, as, it, as, as it moves into past 80. So they're going to count for less in American politics. And the generations coming after have different political complexions. And meanwhile, we're going to have a whole series. We, we, we do have a new... Um, legacy of active government. We do have a new legacy of super cheap interest rates. And we are going to see major, and the Democrats are going to have a lot of power um, between 20 and 22, or 21 and 23, I should say. And the Republicans are going to tear themselves apart. After They're going to be busy, distracted. Uh, you know, un after 2008, Republicans pivoted on a dime uh, into, from Bush to Tea Party. I don't think that's going to happen after Trump because there's going to be too much mutual accusation. Partly the, the defeat is going to be so personal. 2008 was, was a response to a global, uh, depression. This, what was going to happen in 2020 is very much a personal, um, defeat for Donald Trump. You do indicate that, um, that the Trump presidency on the one hand could be a, a disaster, hopefully short lived, but that it's also an opportunity, an opportunity to make some changes, fundamental changes, and maybe even make things better, right, than they were before. Uh, and and uh, you do so, I found it very interesting. Uh, first, there's some very practical things, right, like making every presidential candidate tax returns public, 
um, getting rid of the filibuster in the Congress, a new Voting Rights Act, which you alluded to just a little earlier in our conversation, statehood for D.C. These are very practical political changes. Collectively, make a big difference? I think they create the possibility of reform. Um, you know, you get rid of the, uh, the filibuster. Democrats are never going to have 60 votes in the Senate. But they will sometimes have 50 or more votes in the Senate. And so, and given how lopsided the Senate already is, it allows the American majority to have some opportunity to govern itself, or so long as the filibuster is there. I understand why Democrats say, well, the Republicans will have the Senate more often than us, and they will, and, and at that point, we would use the filibuster. And I said, yeah, but um, what you're saying is in order to protect ourselves against the, the Republicans having the Senate often, we will agree to have the Senate never. And that strikes me as as not a good trade. And when I say Democrats, I'm thinking not about the party, but about the great states and the major urban centers that are disenfranchised by the way the Senate works. But here's um, so I I think that those kinds of technical reforms that I talk about in one mm -hmm. chapter of the book are about the possibility of change. But here's where the change is really going to come from. I think it's not coming from politics exactly, or party politics. I think we're we've been living through one of those periodic moments, we had the one in the 1960s, we had one in the 1840s, of cultural and social reform, um, like the temperance movement, like the social and cultural movements of the 1960s. And, and it's really expressed itself in the Trump years in two ways, in the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, which are not exactly political. I mean, when you say to people in the right. Me Too movement, what do you want? Well, actually, most of the things that we're concerned about, they're already illegal. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, rape is illegal, obviously, and, and, and there's civil liabilities for most forms of sexual harassment. We just want, we want a cultural change. We want people to change how they think and feel and behave and just how they treat other people. And I think that's true of a lot, a lot of Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, it's already, the police are not supposed to choke to death suspects, arrested suspects. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> um, I, I don't know how you rewrite the law to change that. What you need is changes in the culture of policing, changes in the attitudes of people, but the value of, of the lives of, of the marginalized. And I think that's, that's happening. And this is, I think, in many ways, the legacy of Donald Trump. Look, just in life, there are a lot of cruelties and unfairnesses that we can easily take for granted. And he magnifies them. Right. So and, big, we can't miss them. Uh, and you also point out that, um, which I uh, was glad to see that you believe that some of these issues have just become so politicized that that we lose sight of how important they are as a nation to do something about them. For example, in another chapter, you talk about we could have, I'm paraphrasing here, but that we can have health care and we can have immigration reform at the same time, right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. Uh, well, and we could come together on solutions to those two big problems. Well, in a way, you sort of need to come together on them, because and those two particularly, because um, if you're going to have a bigger role of mutual provision in healthcare, and say, you know, we're going to say Americans are in this together, then you have to be, you can't say, well, then anyone on earth who chooses to show up gets to be an American. Um, you know, it's one thing when showing up in the United States allows you to um, to work. It's another one. It gives you this enormous claim on the state. Um, you know, you if we have a world in which if, if you're an American, you can spend millions of dollars when you get sick or your child gets sick, uh, then that becomes, as it is in 
Canada, as it is in Australia, as it is in Europe and Great Britain, people say, you know, we, we have to think very hard about who we um, accept as one of our own because it's a big guarantee we're making. And so um, I, that moment when the candidates, that moment, I think in Miami, when the Democratic candidates raised their hands, every single one of them to say they were in favor of, of health care coverage for illegal aliens. I mean, I get what they're saying, that the majority of those the best estimate is the majority of illegal aliens in the United States have been here for 10 years or more. They're obviously not going anywhere. Uh, they've acculturated and they're going to get old and then get, they're going to get sick and then what happens? So I, I see that problem. But if you just make it an open-ended commitment that you come here illegally and you get healthcare, um, you're either going to destroy, you're going to destroy one, either the immigration system or the healthcare system or possibly both. Uh, but doesn't that get to the, back to the question that you pointed out, which is, if, if there's going to be compromise on these two issues or even progress on these two issues, uh, then we have to have a different Congress, right? Or diff pe yeah. di people in Congress who are even willing to, um, uh, to, to sit down and talk about what might be done. And that gets to the issue of climate change, that you have a whole chapter on that, which I believe is so important and should not be. How did it become a partisan issue? I mean, again, yeah. working for a Republican early on, in California, the leaders and the founders of the environmental movement in California were all Republicans. Right. Well, they knew them all. There's a change in the social basis. That, well, you knew a Republican Party that was dominated um, uh, by the kind of people by people by people like Elizabeth Warren in the days when she was a Republican. Um, you know that it was the Republican Party was the party of the uh, the educated professionals. Um, you know, who a little more affluent than their neighbors, um, a little more distant from everyday problems. And at the way an environmental argument went in 1975, it was that the union-backed Democratic Party that tended to be more skeptical of environmental legislation. What will this do for our factory jobs? And the, um, you know, educated professionals in the Republican Party who said, well, you know, we're prepared to pay, you know, pay a little bit more in order to have cleaner water. Um, that's not how it is now. And then there's a special thing that has happened, which is as the Republican Party has become so dependent on extractive industries and votes from Appalachia, it's become a party of coal and oil and gas. Not the votes. And this is a point I, I've been making since 2016. It's now even more true, but it was already true in 2016 that the number of people who worked in the coal industry, every, not just the miners, the bookkeepers, marketing, uh, everybody. In 2016, it was like 65,000 people, which is fewer than the number of people, <laughs> fewer than the number of people who, are, who have paid to license themselves as yoga instructors in the United States. <laughs> and today, the industry is smaller than it was in 2016 in terms of employment. It's also smaller than an energy source. Yeah. And yet, um, so much political power, at least certainly with, with some people. Now, finally, David, one thing I want to challenge you on is that... Um, I, I, I love the positive part of the book. I love the fact that that I do believe this is an opportunity that we've learned a lot and we come out of this and say we've got to do better on, se on several levels. You state that the first step toward making progress is that some of these Republican leaders who have embraced Trump and defended him have to admit they were wrong. Really? Can you imagine Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham ever standing up and saying, we were wrong. <laughs> well, I can't. <laughs> what I'm talking about here is, look, the country is in, has been in a state of abnormal political polarization. 
Um, and this is not how th – th th there have been other moments in American history when it was like this, the 1880s, but there have been most moments when it is not like this. Um, and the American government isn't set up to work this way. Um, you know, it, it's, we're not a parliamentary country with where there's a government and an opposition. The duty of a of the opposition is to oppose. Who's the government of the United States? Is it the the president? Is he the government, or is it the speaker of the House of Representatives who leads the larger party? Who like who's like who's the equivalent of a prime minister in a parliamentary country? They both have power. Nothing happens unless they they find some way to do business together. Um, and Unfortunately, and this is more a Republican problem than a Democratic problem, but in the future, it may become a Democratic problem. The way the president holds power of his, over his party is by whipping up their rage against other people. Um, that, that, that tweet that the president had from Florida this weekend about the, the, you know, the, the old people in the villages screaming at each other, you're a Nazi, white power. Yeah. Like, that's a powerful political resource. That, uh, I mean, as abhorrent as that scene is, it also should be seen... They're both way more upset at each other than people who live in one country ought to be if anything is going to happen. And so I, I want to take that temperature down. And I think if we're going to get anything done, we need, I mean, and yeah, and I want to hold Lindsey Graham to account and, you know, Marco Rubio needs to find a new way to make a living. <laughs> but <laughs> the, 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 those, those screaming Floridians, they need a way to forgive each other. You end the book uh, by saying that the worst thing that could happen to the Republican Party would be for Donald Trump to win re-election. Yeah. Why? Because if he wins, that means the Republican Party is setting itself up as a party of self-conscious sabotage of democracy as its way to success. Um, it's setting up... Um, that a commitment that having fewer and fewer people vote is the way to win. Um, it, and it is accepting Donald Trump's legacy. It is becoming, um, uh, it is becoming a European authoritarian populist party like the national front in France. And it's doing something else. And this is really the, the most cursed thing of all. Uh, it's trying to run a party of enterprise and business on the, the votes of the parts of the country where things are, where enterprise and business are doing worst. That how you run a, a party of enterprise, where which is not competitive in Silicon Valley, uh, which is not competitive um, in even in, in Houston and Dallas and Atlanta anymore, which, all three of which are overwhelmingly Democratic or metropolitan areas. Uh, that the it's a party of the most hard hit. Uh, parts of the country that are most hard hit by globalization. And so that makes it a reactionary, backward-looking party because it rests on the votes of people who are finding that the world is not treating gently with them. Are you going to vote for Joe Biden? Oh, yeah. I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. That was a harder thing because I had to make a new ha – I had to break the habits of a lifetime. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, but it's not just my vote. Um, I, I tell a story in the book about being at the Republican convention in 2016. And, and I got sort of trapped in between, you know, the fencing with a person of my own age and dressed similarly and had a sympathetic face. And we end up with shoved together. So we get in conversation and uh, we had, we found we had similar views. And I said, so what are you going to do? He said, what can I do? He said, I'm going to vote for the bastard. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's your wife going to do? I said, oh, she hates him. <laughs> <laughs> and your kids, they're all registered as Democrats. Yeah, there you go. David Frum is our guest. The book is Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. A very thoughtful, very challenging, uh, and very provocative look at the 
presidency in America post Donald Trump. David Frum, thanks so much, good friend. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for your hospitality as always. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks so much to David Frum. Again, the name of this new book is Trumpocalypse, Trumpocalypse. And there'll be a link to for you to buy the book on the episode notes of today's podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod, please, if you haven't already done so. Just pull up whatever site you're listening to this podcast. Look for the Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe. You are in, and it would really be great if you could tell your friends to do the same. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong, and come on back for the next edition of Bill Press Pod. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.